welcome to the Karen Kenny Show. This is the place where we take a no bullshit look at life's little lessons. Here, together, we find the spiritual glory in even the most wicked hard story. This is a journey from fear back to love and how we can find our greatest strength and happiness in some of the most unlikely places. I believe that if you're willing to change your mind, you can totally change your life. So, are you ready to rewrite your story and choose to live free? Let's do this. Hey, you guys. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of The Karen Kenny Show. I'm actually getting a little verklempt. I'm getting a little like, <laughs> I'm super giddy because one of my favorite people on the planet is here with me today. And those of you who know me, you've heard me talk about Marianne like forever. So my guest is Marianne Williamson. I will do a little informal talk about her and then I will read the official bio for those of you who maybe haven't been lucky enough yet uh, to know my beautiful friend in Menza. And, um, and my spiritual godmother. So um, Marianne uh, came into my life at a time where I really needed some help. And I found her first through books, right? Her book, A Return to Love. This sucker literally fell off a bookshelf in a bookstore in Burbank, California when I was living there. And that's how I first became aware of her. And um, it was like 19, I want to say like 1993, um, and a return to love had just come out like a year before that. And Marianne was on Oprah and like everything blew up. So I just became really aware of this incredible woman. And I often talk about, um, this first book of hers as the life changer. And, um, those of you who know me, you know, my story, my mother was murdered when I was 12 and I didn't have any tools for kind of navigating that. And, you know, Marianne talks a lot about these young children, she's out campaigning. Those of you who know, she's running for president. She's out campaigning. And she talks a lot about kids who are in crisis, kids who have like chronic PTSD. And I would say that like, uh, I had PTSD, but I didn't know it, right? It was a really, when an act of violence like that happens, like it just, it exponentially violence like that has an, an effect, not only on the immediate family, but a community. So I was walking around in a lot of suffering and it never occurred to me that I actually could make a choice about whether or not I suffered and how I was experiencing myself and God in the world. And Marianne's first book just like blew my mind. And it was the first time anybody taught me. And I really do feel like Marianne was sent to me directly from my mother um, as my, my earth angel. Like I always say, like, you know, my mom was up here doing her thing. Uh, she's always with me and she sent me Marianne. And I often say that two of the most impactful things in my life ever, one was losing my mom. And the second was Finding Marion Williamson. And so we ended up, I, I saw her books and I didn't have a car at the time. I was taking the bus everywhere, living in LA. And eventually one day I finally got a car. The first things, one of the first things I did is I started going to her lectures. And through that we met and on and on and on. There's so many stories, but I really want to focus on Marianne. But I just wanted to say, uh, I'm so jazzed to have her here. I know you're going to love her too. So I'm going to read the little bit of the official bio for those of you who might not know her. Um, so Marianne is a best-selling author. She is a, um, a, a lecturer. She is a political activist, a nonprofit activist. She's worked with thousands of individuals, both large and small, in groups, transforming crisis into opportunity. 
And I can tell you 100% that that is true because she did it with me in my own life. Uh, for over 35 years, you guys, she's been helping people heal from problems that in many ways have been created by irresponsible political establishment. And she really has an up close and personal understanding of the impact of bad policy uh, on the average American's lives. Uh, for three decades, you guys, come on, you've been following her. You know, she's been a spiritual leader. She has been um, in religiously progressive circles. And her book, so this is what's so fascinating, Marianne, and we're going to talk about this a little bit. I was with you when you wrote this in like 97. I was there during the writing of this book, and I find it so fascinating how this is now coming full circle like today. So we'll talk about this book, The Healing of America. Um, so her book about the intersection of spirituality and politics, Healing the Soul of America, was released in 97 and re-released in a revision earlier this year, you guys. So this is a beautiful book. And I will put all of these books um, on the page so you guys can find them too. Uh, and her new book, A Politics of Love, just came out. You guys, this sucker is awesome. Make sure you grab a copy of this. <laughs> so that just came out. It was released in 2019, April. She's written, mind-blowing, 13 books, and four of them were on the New York Times number one, number one best-selling list. Um, back in 89, she started Project Angel Food, which was helping to deliver meals to uh, homebound AIDS patients. Um, it served over 11 million meals. I mean, think about how powerful that is. And I remember back in 2004, too, you also had a hand in co-creating the, um, the Peace Alliance, which supports the creation of a U.S. Department of Peace, which we're going to talk about a little bit about that, too. So you guys, my finally, <laughs> my amazing guest, Marianne Williamson. Marianne, thank you so much for being on the show. <laughs> thank you for having me, Karen. You're so fabulous. Um, so one of the things I wanted to um, talk about, that's one of the things that I found fascinating, is I remember back in, so you came for a visit to Concord in 2016 because yeah. you're, you're so sweet and you love me and you're like, let's do something together. And I said, would you come to New Hampshire? And you said, yes. And, uh, and you actually talked about how your spiritual journey started in New Hampshire. So will you share a little bit about that, um, about where you uh, got lit up from the inside out? <laughs> well, when I was 14 years old, I went to Phillips Exeter um, in New Hampshire for a summer program, high school yeah. summer program. And in the brochure, it talked about how there was a class called Philosophical Approaches to the Question of God. Oh. And I remember when I saw that sentence being just blown away, what does that mean? But I knew somehow that was where I belonged. That was the conversation I wanted to have. And I remember that class. I don't remember the name of the professor, but I remember, I remember several things about the class. It was my first exposure to uh, theology and philosophy. Um, I remember how much I loved that summer, how much I begged my parents to then send me to that kind of school, <laughs> although they wouldn't. Um, and uh, it was amazing. So, yeah, so that was always my, I always had this thing about when I was 14 years old in New Hampshire. Yeah, I think that's pretty cool. And so, you know, here's the thing about New Englanders in general, and you've spent a lot of time on the East Coast in New York and stuff like that. Yeah. I don't think you've spent a ton of time in New Hampshire, but lately you've been here a lot and kind of connecting with people. And I always remember thinking, uh, Paul Holds and I have talked about this a little bit. And I said, the thing about New Englanders is we're a little tough in the beginning, right? Like we don't warm up that fast. 
But once we love you, like we're loyal for life, you know, we're pretty hardcore about that. So I feel like you're really gaining some momentum and people are having a greater awareness of you and what you stand for and, you know, what's important to you and the things that you've been talking about. So what's your experience been uh, coming to New Hampshire? It's very much what you just said. When I was first here, I thought, whoa, this place is tough. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know if they'll ever get me and I don't know if I can emotionally align myself here, I don't, I don't know. And then after around two or three trips, after a couple of trips, it, it all sort of fell away. Um, I have a little bit of that in my own personality, but in a different way. Um, so uh, yeah, now it's fine. But at the beginning it was absolutely what you just said, a real concern that this sort of new England personality wouldn't get me and I wouldn't be able to connect and that doesn't, that doesn't seem to be there at all for me now. No, I think there's actually a lot of love for you in this state. And I remember the first time that you came in 2016, um, we just kind of did it spur of the moment as a surprise. And I had three weeks, like it was like three weeks to plan this event. And like 700, over 700 people came out to see you because they were Can like, we they like that again? Yeah, I would love to. They're hungry. They're hungry. Please let's talk about how we can do that again, because that's what we should be doing. Yeah, I love that. Well, we did it at the Capital Center for the Arts, and we paired with Gibson's Bookstore, and I think it was a really uh, wonderful and smart conversation. Yeah, let's do more of it, because I think think people... You know, as a writer, we're both writers, and I, and I often say people are desperate for true stories and people are desperate for the truth. And I don't feel like um, in most of the political conversation, it always feels like a fucking game, like some sort of sh- like three cod Monty is like going on. And I think the one of the things that I've always loved about you and admired about you, and this goes way back. So for those of you who don't know, uh, for a good period of time, I, I worked with, or for, I should say, worked for, but lived with, like, on her property, like, Marianne. So I was very much involved in her life and with her daughter and seeing how things, and, and just really seeing you and how you lived up close and personal. You have always, always, and you say it like this. I'll say it how you say it, and then I'll say it how I say it. You say, I'm not saying anything different that my peers or the people around me are not saying, except I say it when the mic is on. And I'm always like, hallelujah, amen. Because one of the things I've always respected about you is how you use your voice and how you have never been afraid to say the thing that might be unpopular, the thing that might get you some pushback. You've never been afraid. And I'm not saying I can't know always your internal state of mind, obviously, but what it has appeared to me is that you've never been afraid to lose money or followers um, in service to the truth. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, I think you decide in life whose respect you're after. I remember many years ago when I did some cabaret singing. And Mm. I remember your singers sing. And there would be singers that I would think were so amazing. And all the people in the room were talking and, not really listening, and I'm thinking, oh my God, don't you, why don't you all shut up so we can hear this amazing singer? And then there would be other people that everybody was going nuts over and thinking it was so great, and I was thinking, what is everybody so excited about? <laughs> I often have the same experience. And I, and I remember thinking, if I ever do this, I want to be, if I was in the back, if I was sitting in the back, would I respect it? And so I've always known that you can't, that, that, that how, how many people are applauding at the moment 
may or may not be a reflection of what you at a soul level feel is the best work you could do. Now, running for president, it's, it's hard applying that because I think having a deeper conversation, which is the, that which I most respect, I think in order to get to real solutions, whether we're talking about our individual lives or we're talking about our societal life, we have to have a deeper conversation. Yeah. In terms of having societal impact, you know, I was so fortunate in my career because Oprah had me on. Yes. So factors like being on Oprah penetrate the field. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have that, and I was able to ride on the coattails of that so much. Sure. So in politics, it's harder because if you don't have something like that to help you penetrate the field, you have to have faith that the power of the deeper conversation, it's like when something is going into your body, a certain kind of cream or ointment. Mm -hmm in at a very deep level but then with the grassroots campaign that penetration of the field will only occur if enough people join with you in that deep place to then put it out there you know like in in the realm of politics that would mean putting it out there on your you know your social media or discussing it with your friends sending money yes um we're living in a in a society where the dominant cultural conversation is so shallow. Oh. And we're living at a time when the need for deep conversation is so great. Yes. But if you're, if you're running a political campaign and you're trying to have a deeper conversation, then it does take assuming that other people will hear you. Now, in the things that you're talking about my career so far, it almost didn't matter because you're putting it out to the culture and people will either get it or not. And you're assuming that it's affecting the ethers. Sure. But in a political campaign, if it doesn't break through into political force, yes. So you make people vote for you. Yes. Then it is an exercise in futility. I mean, you could say something like, well you're affecting the conversation but that's kind of silly because if all you're doing is affecting the conversation you'd be better off just giving talks and writing books well right and one of the things i think that you said recently and i think um i think this is how sometimes human minds work so i think when you first announced and i want to circle back to that in a second when you first announced and everybody was like oh my god i totally vote for her i love marianne like oh right so this and and remember i'm already in the pool of people who um like love you right so we're talking about we have to move beyond just the yoga teachers the spiritual people you know whatever it's like all right so what about the people who you know ha haven't 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 heard of you yet and so i remember when in the beginning it was like i almost feel like in people's minds they set up this goal like oh, we're just going to try and, and have a different or a better or a deeper conversation. And then it was like, okay, um, th that's happening. That's really cool. And I know it was happening because I thought it was fascinating that, again, in 97, you were talking about reparations for slavery. You were talking about apologies to African-Americans and Native Americans and stuff. You were having these thoughts and you were talking about these things way back in the day. And when you first announced, nobody else was talking about reparations. Nobody else was talking about these things. Then all of a sudden, it was like this little effect 
where other people were catching wind. I'm not going to name names of other candidates, but all of a sudden I'm like, oh, everybody's getting on the reparations bandwagon, but I know where it started. So it was like, all right, we are influencing the conversation. Great, but that's not enough. And then it was like, we just need to get the 65,000 individual campaign donations. Um, and then it was like, always up in the ante. Then we need to get 1% of three polls. And I'm just like, this is how I know this sucker is gaining momentum. I'm like, because it's happening. And it's no longer about the conversation. It's no longer just about getting on the DNC debate stage at the end of June. This is like, we're trying to go all the way. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And I think that there's going to come a point, whether you, you're talking about the Malcolm Gladwell tipping point or whatever, there comes a point where there's going to be a shift in consciousness where they're not like, I don't know who said it. Was it Gandhi or uh, Einstein? I'm not sure who said it, but um, they said basically at first they laugh at you, right? Then they make fun of you. And then at some point, at some point, they're going to have to start taking you seriously. First they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, then you win. Yes, exactly. And then there's another quote that I have like right over here. And every time I think of you and what you're trying to do, I just, I was like, so Einstein said, great spirits have always experienced violent opposition from mediocre minds. And I think what you're trying to do is to um, get people to wake up. And in A Course in Miracles, there's a line, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, that says, you know, at some point, children have to put away children's toys. And I feel like that's what you've been talking about so much about how it's time it's time for, to quote you, boys to become men and girls to become women to start getting serious about, and I remember one time, I tell this story a lot. In fact, I told it on the episode last week when at one point we were up in your bedroom in Montecito and we, I was helping you pack for something. It was a book tour or whatever. And I was like 26 maybe at the time, 27 at the time. And I was prattling on about something. And the way you have always taught me and it's, it's good because it's what I've always needed because I've got a little bit of a thick skull, is you're very direct. You've always been very, like, very direct with me. And I remember me saying something, and you just whipped around and you said to me, until you start to take your life seriously, your life isn't going to take you seriously. And I remember getting like, <laughs> I took. I take things seriously. I'm a serious person. I feel things, right? But it took me <laughs> like... <laughs> Took me like three years to figure out what, what you actually meant. <laughs> and I was like, all of a sudden it was like, it dawned on me like, oh. And I think that's part of what's having to happen right now is we are in serious times. And we, it's time for men and women to grow the fuck up and to start like having that deeper conversation. Well, I think that in, in terms of our community and the higher consciousness community, there are a lot of us. And we could exert a lot of very uh, powerful political force if we saw it as possible. I mean, the, the health and wellness community, higher consciousness, yoga, etc., has had a powerful effect on the culture. That's where all these yoga mats come from. That's where all this mindfulness stuff comes mm -hmm. from. But we don't think of ourselves in serious enough ways when it comes to political influence. And we could. So like you said, we think of it, oh, well, that she's, it's cool she's doing it. And then too many in this culture buy into the idea of she's a long shot. Then, oh, well, maybe she's not a long shot. Maybe we can get her into the debates. What I need is enough people thinking, <laughs> Donald Trump is president. We can win the presidency too. So yes. I'm having a conversation 
that is emergent from the, the, the possibilities that we speak of, for instance, about healthcare. Our healthcare policy at this point, it's not a healthcare conversation, it's a sickness care conversation. Mm -hmm. Conversation about how once you get sick, West, the Western medical establishment is very good at, de at dealing with acute illness. So our healthcare conversation in this society is about who's gonna pay for that. So really it's, it's not a sickness, it's not a healthcare conversation, it's a sickness care conversation and it's a business conversation. Yes. The real healthcare conversation as we know in our kind of community has to do with cultivating health, it has to do with diet, it has to do with exercise, it has to do with lifestyle, it has to do with food. So if we're really going to have a healthcare conversation in America, we have to have a health conversation in America, which means we have to talk about the environmental toxins, the food toxins, the chemical toxins, mm -hmm. all of the agricultural uh, practices, all of the ways even that our economic policies increase our stress and how much that stress is under chronic illness. The real conversation we should be having about health in America is why are so many people in the wealthiest country in the world dealing with chronic unnecessarily uh, frequent chronic illness. Why is there so much diabetes in this country? Why is there so much obesity in this country? Yes. Why is there so much heart disease in this country? Why is there so much cancer in this country? Why is there so much asthma in this country? And if we do that, then you have to really talk about the, the belly of the beast. We're having the more sophisticated conversation, not the least sophisticated conversation. But if this higher consciousness community doesn't support the emergence of that conversation within the political field, then it will not happen. Wow. Sorry, God. Well, and that's true of everything. We, we have a national security agenda that is based on endless war, but it's not based on creating peace. You yes. create peace one heart at a time. You create peace by helping people. You create peace by helping women get educated. Women have economic opportunity and children get educational opportunity and reducing the violence against women and reducing desperation, unnecessary suffering among people. That is the kind of conversation that our community understands. Well, if, that, if this community wants to turn that into political force, then they have to make it happen. And so it's interesting because our community is very big at incubating new ideas. Yes. <laughs> like the best at incubating new ideas. And our community is very good at talking about ways that we can apply those ideas to our own personal lives. Yes. And now it's time to talk about how to apply those ideas to the larger culture. 100%. And I think, you know, putting me as a person aside, it wouldn't matter who it is. We have someone speaking our language running for president. What is it somebody doesn't understand? Do you know what I'm saying? I do know what you're saying. And I found, what I found so fascinating is I know a shit ton of people in the yoga and spiritual community here, right? In New Hampshire. I know a few people in other states too, but like I, I've been in the yoga community here in New Hampshire for like over 20 years. And when I reach out to people and I've said, hey, you know, uh, will you host, you know, Mary Ann, like for an event? And I'm like always amazed when people say no because they want to keep their space politically free. And I'm like, what? Don't people what that really say? But that's not that. And let's talk about why that is. Right. So it's corruption is the same corruption as the political system, but it's coming emerging from a community that theoretically isn't corrupted. It's called brand protection. Exactly. That's my whole point. <laughs> That's all that it is. With brand protection is I don't want to. I don't want to risk somebody not wanting to be my client anymore. That's all that that's saying. Well, great because we're going down. So, yeah. so really, really, everybody have a good time with your green juice and your 
gluten-free, but that will only take you so far when they're poisoning the air and poisoning the water and poisoning the food. So it, yeah. no matter what the public issue is, it will get to my private door. So, I, I mean, the good news is how many people in this community are putting I'm saying yes. But, but it's really something for us. That's all it is. It's just the corruption of capitalism right there I might lose a little money I might lose a few clients that's that's all that it is and I and I believe that I know I found in my, in my career that when I speak my truth as I really perceive it now some of those people you're talking about really honestly might not agree with what I'm saying so I understand that sure. but for those who do but just say I want to keep it apolitical um, I know in my in my life and career when I really stand on truth as I understand it for every person that I turn off, there are five others that notice me for the first time. Yes! Because if you're not going to be authentic, and you know, and this is the tribe that talks about authenticity. Oh, Jesus, don't get me started. Yeah, yeah. So. Yeah, it, and, you know, but also, what is, the, like, I understand separation of church and state, blah, blah, blah. But at what point, I don't mean blah, 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 like it's not important. But what I'm saying is, why are people so, like, th this whole concept, like, oh, well, I'm going to reserve my time with God for Saturday at temple, or I'm going to reserve my time with God for Sunday at mass. Or I'm like, your whole life is your spiritual life. That means your political life, your sexual life, when you're cooking food, whenever you're, I always say, whether you're making love or making a salad, God is there. Like your whole life is your spiritual life. And we like to do this thing where we separate. And it's kind of like, I, I talk about it with my clients sometimes. You know, the five things that Americans get weird about. It's like food, sex, money, politics, and religion. And I'm like, but some of those, like, that's the most important stuff. Why aren't we talking about these things? Because this is what the fabric of our lives is made up of. And if you're going to get quiet when it comes to politics, which affects everybody and everything, it's like, it's a complicity. I always say, like, you know, what Martin Luther King Jr. used to say when, like, if, and I'm paraphrasing, but... When you don't speak up, when you become silent, you have chosen. And that is a choice. And to say, oh, I'm just not being political. No, it, it, I, I don't think we should coddle that in ourselves. or oh. um, When you look at the history of the United States, it was the early evangelicals and Quakers that started the abolitionist movement. And many of the leaders of the suffragette movement were, um, were Quakers and the civil rights movement emerged from a, a Baptist preacher, Dr. King, and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. So the idea of a spiritual community, I, I don't think we should really call ourselves spiritual then because spirituality <laughs> is the path of the heart, and it's not just the path of your heart. There is no uh, serious spiritual or religious path anywhere that gives any of us a pass on addressing the, su the suffering of other sentient beings. That's all we're talking about. We talk Amen. about that's all the politics is. All the politics is, what's our collective behavior? And does our collective behavior help or harm? 100%, Marianne. I mean, asking the deeper question about what helps and what harms, then you're not getting real. And if you're only talking about what helps and what harms as it relates to you individually, and call it whatever you want to call it, but please don't call it spiritual. Oh, my God. Yeah, somebody, somebody uh, I was at a conference recently. Um, and a woman was trying to ask a question. She was uh, having a hard time articulating it. But what she was really saying is, and she's a therapist, and she's also in the yoga community, and she's vegan, and she's a lot, she's got, you know, she's a lot of things. But one of the questions she was trying to say is, at what point do we move beyond self-help 
and just focusing on the individual and actually taking all the shit that we do and work on in the spiritual world out into the universal? When does it become about more than just me and my kids and my neighborhood and my schools? Well, theoretically, she would be interested in my campaign because that's what my campaign is. Yes. That is what we're talking about here. We're talking about taking the conversation of health and wellness and applying it to the larger society. Our society is unhealthy. Our society is, is toxic. And in all the ways that we in the higher consciousness community talk about. So we should be the biggest grown-ups in the room. We should not be standing on the periphery. And to say things like, I don't want to get political. A little girl, that's a little girl's comment. Thank that's you. comment. Yeah, you know, it's so powerful. I have like three questions. Well, I have a bunch of questions. But one of the things I, I'm dying to know, um, and I also want to ask you um, this thing about women in politics too. So don't, please don't let me forget about that. But do you know, do you know, I remember when you called me in 2017, it was like the summer, and you said, I'm, I'm thinking I'm, I'm going to run. What do you think? And I was like, oh my God. And first of all, I was like, now I'm charged with holding this incredible secret for like 18 months, <laughs> but I was really happy to hold it. But I was thinking about this the other day. So there's a, um, a radical lawyer and civil rights activist uh, from back in the day. His name is William Kunstler. Do you know who he is? I much know who William Kunstler is. Yeah. So I thought he was fascinating. So I, I read something about him once. It made me very curious about him and his work. And he has this picture and he kept it on his desk and it's a picture of David. Um, and it's a Cobb statue that Michelangelo did. And it's David just standing there with the slingshot over his shoulder. And it's the only depiction of art before uh, most of the things have him holding, you know, Goliath's head. And um, William Kunstler said that um, this is the only depiction of art. And it's when David is standing there and he's saying, do I dare? do I dare? And it was before anybody knew he was going to take on the giant. It was before. So he could still have gotten out of it. He could have said no, and nobody would have been more the wiser. And he was talking about how he thinks about that before taking on a client. So I'm trying to imagine, like, I remember you calling me, but I'm like, okay, there's a, there's a moment when the individual curriculum downloads or you get the assignment or the thought emerges, the inspiration happens. And it's like, do I dare? Can you talk about like what that, that moment is like when you think like, I'm getting like God calls, am I, you know, am I going to answer? So are you able to share with us about that? Well, the conversation that I've been in professionally for the last 35 years has to do with how we transform from the inside out, how we have to take a very deep and honest look at ourselves. And when we do, miracles can happen because we, we heal personally, emotionally, psychologically, and spiritually, the same way we detox physically. Stuff has to come up and be brought forth. And that's what you do in therapy. That's what you do in a spiritual path. You take a deep look. Where are you who you say you are? Where are you standing on what you say you believe? Where do you have things to clean up? Where do you have character defects? Where do you take, need to take a serious moral inventory? Where do you have to recognize things that aren't even fun to look at? put them on the table and then commit to change. And then when we do that, it's like when you said, I said to you, you've got to start getting more serious about your life. You know, you were at an age where, no, you know, it, 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 it a certain, there's a certain kind of, I always say childlike and childish are two different things. We want to be childlike because childlike is very adult. But there's a point in all of our lives where that which is the lightheartedness 
at a certain point, it's time to go on to a new depth of seriousness. And all that a country is, is a collection of people. So America is not behaving in a mature way. America is not taking a deep and honest look at itself. America is not taking an honest look at the way our food policies and our environmental policies and our gun policies and our, and our, and our healthcare policies and our international policies and our economic policies because they do more to serve corporate interests than to serve the people are dangerous. They're damaging. They're, they're eroding. They're eroding our democracy. They're eroding too many people's lives. They're eroding what happens in other countries where people are dying because of wars that we're participating in, in Yemen, and we're only participating so that we can sell $350 billion worth of arms. It's what somebody in some yoga class somewhere says, well, I don't want to go there. I don't want to get political. Give me a break, Karen. Give me a break. Tens of thousands of people are starving. Many of them are children because of that war. And this is America. We should not be participating in a genocidal war. And it is not higher consciousness to look away from that. It is lower consciousness to look away from that. And so I know that in because I've worked so much with people for 35 years and because I've lived my own life, you want to heal, you're going to have to get real. You're going to have to stop pretending. And you're going to have to stop distracting yourself from what's really going on. <laughs> yes. And so I want to facilitate that conversation for this country. Yes. And if you facilitate the conversation, which I have in books, and I can sell books. And, and, and I can sell books and not have to humiliate myself. Well, yeah, but that's what I'm saying, right? So that's what we're talking about here is power. What does that mean? That means power to appoint someone to the head of the EPA who is a world-class environmentalist rather than someone who is working for the chemical companies or the oil companies. It means appointing the person to be the head of the, the, the State Department, who is a world-class uh, humanitarian and diplomat who understands peace building and how we must actually build peace and not just use the State Department as an instrument of navigating and facilitating corporate sales, oil companies, and so forth. Amen. You, you appoint someone who is attorney general who understands the systemic issues of racism and how they play in and racial disparity and criminal sentencing and so forth. So I've had the conversation for 35 years, but now it's time for us to move from conversation to power. Yes. And, and as women, we should be supporting each other in that. Now, as I said, the higher consciousness community has already demonstrated that culturally. Like I said, where do you think all these yoga mats come from? Where do you think all this mindfulness stuff comes from? So we're not without power, but we have not turned our, our power yes. to the political realm yet. And this campaign is an opportunity for us to do that. Yeah, it's more about like, okay, uh, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of talking. There's a lot of talking that happens in, in the spiritual communities. I'm always like, yeah, now it's time to get your ass in gear. Like it's to turn it into actual action, like inspired action. And one of the things you, you know, you said about women. So you, I, I printed this out because I wanted to talk about this. Um, and for those of you at home, I'm just reading off a sheet of a post that you did on social media. Nevada is the first state to have a female majority state legislator, legislature. So it's not surprising they just passed a law protecting a woman's right to reproductive freedom. So if you want to protect women, elect women. And this is something I was thinking about. So when you wrote um, A Woman's Worth, you guys, this is a really powerful book, A Woman's Worth. I highly recommend it. 
Um, so I'm thinking to myself, okay, Marion's been talking about, the, I mean, what haven't you been talking about? Hello, wake up America. So you've been talking about all these things for a long time. But as you being a woman and also a mom, you have a beautiful daughter who I love, um, what do you think being a woman and a mother brings, that particular experience brings to either politics or to the presidency? There are millions of American children who live in chronic trauma. There are millions of American children who go to school every single day in schools that don't even have the adequate school supplies with which to teach a child to read. And if a child cannot read by the age of eight, the chances of high school graduation are drastically diminished and the chances of incarceration are increased. That child, you were talking before about having PTSD when you were a child. Yeah. So there are millions of American children for whom the violence in their communities and the same kind of violence that you experienced, yes, maybe not their parent, but their friends and so forth, I is so that. great that their PTSD, psychologists say, is no less than the PTSD of a returning veteran. And the response of the political establishment is simply to normalize their despair. We should be rescuing these children no differently than if they were the victims of a natural disaster. And they, they, to me, represent a natural emergency. This is why I want to have a United States Department of Children and Youth. Oh. A massive realignment of investment in the direction of children 10 years old and younger. So when you ask me how does being a mother affect that, it affects, it affects it deeply because I realize the love that will save the world now cannot just be love for our own children. It has to be love love for the children on the other side of town as well, and the children on the other side of the world. We yeah. are all one. It's not just a theory. Yes, exactly. And the golden rule is the description of how the consciousness, uh, 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 how the universe operates. Do unto others as you would have others do unto you. Why? Because they will. And if they don't, somebody else will. Whatever you put out, every action has a reaction. So this country, there is, there is karma for the individual and there's karma for a nation. So if those of us who know that aren't saying it, so to me, what we are doing, like even here in New Hampshire, we can talk about treating the opioid crisis. Yep. It's not going to be enough to just treat the condition of the addict if, on the other hand, we are bringing up whole generations of people whose lives are going to be so desperate by the age of 15 that they'll do whatever it is to get out of the pain, no yes. matter the societal dysfunction is. It all happens before the age of eight. So I'm running for president because you need a president with the consciousness to understand. This is 21st century thinking. The realization, first of all, of how much happens before the age of eight. That's why the Dalai Lama said if we would just teach children to meditate underneath the age of eight, within a generation, we would have peace on earth. Well, let me... We don't have a natural national security agenda that is based on creating peace. You know, we, we know that you can't just take medicine, you have to cultivate health. And you can't just endlessly pre prepare for war, you have to cultivate peace. We need a culture of wellness and we need a culture of peace. So when people say, oh, but those aren't political issues, those are profoundly political issues. Because if you only make them issues that relate to a particular subculture, that subculture will go down like everything else goes down, if bombs start flying or World War III starts or, or um, you know, there's economic catastrophe and people who think, oh, well, other people are handling that. If the uh, phenomenon does not prove to you. Uh, so I, I believe that this is a, 
Well, the whole country is having an identity crisis. The whole country is having an existential crisis. And we're doing it on the macro and on the micro. Yes. And on the macro, it, the country is deciding whether to be an aristocracy or a democracy. And on a micro, each of us are deciding whether to be children or whether to be adults. Exactly. And, you know, I, I tweeted last night, I said, you know, Franklin Roosevelt said, the only thing we had to fear was fear itself. The only thing we have to fear is our own self-absorption <laughs> and our own chronic distractedness and our own cynicism that we justify with some kind of counterfeit spiritual notion. Dude, uh, yes, 100%. Something that you said that I, I want to, um, I have like three, like I know you probably got to go shortly, but there's three things I definitely want to say. So um, when you said this concept that somebody else is going to handle it, there is like a laziness that like kind of goes on, a complacency. And I don't think, I talk about people all the time. It's like, um, there's an urgency. <laughs> there's an urgency. And I'm like, I did, and I'm like you're not picking it up because you're numbed out. Right. If the Trump presidency, if the Trump presidency doesn't make it clear to you that the times are urgent, then then you just we're not in the same conversation. Yes. And so there's an urgency. And sorry, go ahead. But if you do believe that these times are urgent, then I hope you'll look at Mary in 2020. Yeah, a hundred percent. And here's something that I see there's been some pushback on and I want to address it because I think it's important. And so Einstein, and I'm paraphrasing, right? Einstein, and I know you know this quote, like says basically, I, I paraphrase it like this, uh, problems can't be solved with the same level of thinking and the same level of mind that created it. So all these people who are like, oh, she doesn't have political experience, like, oh, da, da, da. I'm like, look, everything in this world, first of all, it's all a classroom, we're all here to learn, yeah, yeah, yeah. But so much is just about relationship. And one of the things that you are genius at, because I've been watching you do it for a wicked long time, is you have a, a capacity for deep and generous listening. You are one of the best listeners that I have ever met in my life. And you're so smart. Like, I don't, you are so smart. It, it boggles my mind sometimes, the, the, the high capacity level of your intelligence. But you're not just book smart. You're also incredibly emotionally smart. You're also very spiritually smart. And I remember watching you when during the writing of this book um you were a great student and you were always willing to learn and you were learning so much about jefferson you were learning so much about abraham lincoln at the time i just remember just being amazed at your mind's capacity to listen to hold information and to have somebody ask you a question on the spot and be able to like da -da 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 -da, like and you've never i've never seen you in 25 years have notes for a lecture, you have always just let it come through you. So to my point, when people mention that you have no political experience, right, can we just talk about why on some level that doesn't matter at all? Okay. So I'll be glad to tell you. Anybody who thinks that somebody spent a couple of terms in Congress has the political experience necessary doesn't know what people in Congress do all day. <laughs> they spend half their time on the phone raising money. I mean, if people think that people in Congress sit around and have very powerful, meaningful conversations about what's happening in America, then they're really naive about what goes on in Washington. And what goes on in Washington, we have people running for this race, Karen, who have made hundreds of thousands of dollars um, from securities investment firms, uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars from big pharma, hundreds of thousands of dollars from oil companies, Mm -hmm. Hundreds of thousands of dollars from chemical companies. One of the I'm not going to name names, but anybody can see it on OpenSecrets.org. So 
the friends of yours who are saying, oh, they know how Washington works, so they could make it happen. Let me tell you something. I'm running because I'm the one who knows how Washington works. <laughs> how Washington works. Those people, most of them, not all of them, but most of them. I've taken so many hundreds of thousands of dollars in corporate donations, even those who are now saying, oh, well, we're not gonna, I'm not going to take any corporate PAC money. Well, they don't need to because they already have millions of dollars in their coffers that they got before. The fact that I, I, I haven't. So when they say she has no political experience, the political experience those people have had is the problem. <laughs> exactly my so point. I'm challenging, I, I challenge the idea that only those whose careers have been entrenched yes. in the, that got us into this ditch yes. are the only ones we should consider qualified to get us out of this ditch. Yeah, you, you, you are. Roosevelt said that the primary responsibility of the, of the presidency is not administrative. That's just secondary, he said. What, what is most important is moral leadership. Very experienced politicians, Karen, took us into Iraq. Exactly. A, bunch of a bunch of philosophers and yoga practitioners did not lead us into the war of Iraq. <laughs> so I think one might argue that we would have made better decisions. A bunch of philosophers and yoga practitioners didn't lead us into economic policies that created the largest wealth inequality since 1929. So <laughs> this idea that, that we, we, we can't handle that. It's not a mystery what goes on there. What, yes. what do you think they're doing? What they're doing is appointing people. <laughs> and, and, and that has to do with the people who represent the consciousness that we want. What they have to do is imposing their values on, on policies. And you don't have to have been a congressman to do that. You have to be someone who understands what goes on there. And I do. I am I, not new to these issues. The founders did not want to create this political class and only they rule things. That's called an aristocracy. Ours is to be of the people, but the political class for its own purposes has created this illusion that only they understand and only they can be entrusted to lead us, even though they've led us to where we are. That's exactly we're buying into it with this, oh, well, you know, she's not experienced. You know, it's, uh, it's unfortunate. I am, I am a paradigm buster. Yes. And so that is like those who said, how can she get up and talk about God? She's not a priest. She's not a minister. She's not a rabbi. And I got up and I said 35 years ago, you know what? You're not the only ones who have any ideas about God. <laughs> In fact, you don't even have the best ideas about God. In fact, your ideas are stuck in this old thing. And so I helped start a movement. That's what we need to do with politics. Yes. These guys are like the old-fashioned priests and ministers oh, of rabbis. And I stood up and I said, you guys are not the only ones with any great ideas here. Well, and it's like, why are we still drinking the patriarchy Kool-Aid? Thank you. Come Thank on. You. Thank you. It's so boring. It's, no, it's, it's just boring at this point. It's old and it's boring. I'm just like, it's... buy into it where she has no political, uh, you know, it, it's... Uh, yeah, well, and that's why... It's a priest or a minister or a rabbi. I was a woman. When people would say to me, by what authority do you say these Ooh. things? I would say, I, well, I woke up this morning and I'm breathing. <laughs> and I have a mind and I have a heart. Yes. And, that's, that's, and, and, and I did pretty well. Yes. All right. So... That, that made, so I asked people, if you could ask Marion Williamson any question, I have three questions for you, okay? Okay, and then I got to go. Okay, given that money and lobbying is such a big influencer in U.S. politics, to the point that corporations are represented before the citizens, would you try and change that, and if so, how? 
Well, that's the most important thing. The person who wrote that is absolutely correct. That is the cancer underlying all the other cancers. First thing I would do is submit to Congress legislation to establish public funding for political campaigns. That's what we need. Now, there are different, you know, because of Citizens United, because we, it stands for reason we will not be able to overturn that anytime soon. We either need a constitutional um, amendment or we need legislation. Uh, Andrew Yang says, uh, give everybody a certain amount uh, a month. Other people say, give people a certain amount a month. That's what Kirsten Gillibrand says. That's what Ro Khanna in Congress has said. Um, I, I, corporations, I have a little bit of a problem with saying, okay, we're all, all going to have a certain amount of money to spend. I just don't think money should be in the mix. Mm -hmm. I believe it's important for us to realize that we own the airwaves. Most of the money that is raised for political campaigns is used for the purposes of bought media. And we, the airway, we own the airwaves. The people of the United States should legislate that there's a certain amount of air time that every candidate will get. Every candidate will be able to speak to the people with their ideas. And that's what me, the media buy should be. So absolutely, that is the first thing on my agenda because it, it, until we deal with that, until we deal with that, it will be health insurance companies and big pharma and chemical companies and fossil fuel companies and gun manufacturers and defense contractors that will be dominating U.S. policy. Yes. Okay. hundred. I'm not going to even respond to these because I just want, I know you got to go. Um, all right. So speaking of gun policies, uh, uh, the NRA, and so this comes actually from my sweetie. So my sweetie and I have both had people in our lives who were murdered, who were beaten to death, and we understand the exponential effect of violence. And so this is one of the questions that he came up with. The NRA and the firearm industry seem to be fueled on fear and oftentimes perpetuated by the very businesses that profit the most from gun sales. Changing the NRA's stance seems unlikely. So how would you reach out to gun owners and enthusiasts to find support for reasonable gun legislature in order to decrease or better yet eliminate mass shootings? Is, is this something you see as an issue? Well, of course, it's a major, major issue. And really the issue is not, the problem is not so much with gun owners. The problem is with our democracy. And it's the same problem until we cut off the money. The, the financial influence of the NRA, which acts as the lobbying arm for the gun manufacturers. So profitability, short-term profit maximization for gun manufacturers is placed before the health and well-being of our children and ourselves. So we need universal background checks. We need to outlaw bump stocks. We need to make assault weapons not available. We need many more resources given to local communities, police forces, et cetera, so that they can actually, it's not like they don't know so many times where the illegal guns are, it's that they don't have the resources to get them. Mm -hmm. We need loopholes like the boyfriend loophole. And the conversation that's now on the table has to do with whether or not people should have to register guns. Um, the one, one side says, well, we have to register cars. Why not register guns? Other people say that there are too many people in New Hampshire would be an example of people who would go, no, I shouldn't have to register my gun. I'm still in process on whether or not people should have to register it. But the idea that, that we must break the chokehold of the NRA. But once again, it goes back to the first question. Until we get the money out of politics, there will be a limit to what we can do because they will continue to, 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 to dominate the coffers of, of, of mainly Republican, because Democrats, for the most part, the vast majority of Democrats are on the side of much saner. I mean, we don't even have sane uh, gun safety <laughs> legislation. Yes. But sane gun safety, common sense gun safety legislation. As long as the NRA is pouring millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars into uh, the coffers of candidates who can then defeat 
any Republican who talks sanely about this issue, we will have a problem. Now, you see what's happening in, in West Virginia, in Virginia, I mean, right now, because the bill uh, that would have banned the high capacity magazines that was used in the shooting the other day, mm -hmm. that bill was defeated by the Republicans I know. Uh, in this session. So the governor has now called a special session and hopefully the same Republican legislature that refused to ban it before, hopefully because of a heightened awareness and public outcry will begin to change its position. Once again, this is why politics matters. This is why politics matters. If you continue to elect people who are in the pockets of the NRA, this is what we get. A hundred percent. Okay, last one, because I know you have to go. And I have lots of thoughts on all these things, but I'm going to shut my big mouth. All right. The country seems to be divided almost in half with an increasing unwillingness to see or hear out the other side's position. How would you reach across the aisle, so to speak, and find the commonalities that both parties share and help find a compromise, perhaps, that represents all American citizens? There are high-minded conservative values and there are high-minded liberal values. They are the two great political forces in America. And they are at their best a kind of yin and a yang. And the American mind at its best holds both. What is happening today is a corporatist agenda. It's neither conservative nor Republican, nor liberal. It has to do with just serving short-term profits for corporations before the well-being of people. And the great American tradition is to push back against that. That's why we have child labor laws. That's why we have unions. That's why we have antitrust laws and et cetera. Nobody owes it to any of us, Karen, to agree with us. This is a free society. People can, people mm -hmm. can vote however they wish to vote. So the issue is not so much to get people to agree with you, but that we all reclaim a, 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 an ability to respectfully disagree. Mm -hmm. Now, in terms of, 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 of the divide in America, I don't even think the divide is quite what people think. We have a few fearful people. They are bigoted, they are racist, they are anti-Semites, they are homophobes, they are Islamophobes, they are xenophobes, and they have been able to form political force. And our, our president has used them for a base. And then I think a lot of very decent, good people have voted for him as well. But I think many of the people who have voted for him, who have been at least concerned, mm -hmm. are, willing, are willing to listen to an alternative. What we need to do is to create political force out of our decency, out of our goodness. We need, it's not split half and half between fear-based people and loving people far more loving people than, than haters in this country. Yes. The issue is that those who hate, hate with conviction. And conviction is a force multiplier. We need to love with conviction. We need to not just say, I love, but I'm not political. We have to say, I love, therefore I'm going to rescue those children. We have to say, I love, therefore I'm going to support candidates that wage peace and not just war. Amen. So it, it's, got, it's got to be a level of conviction behind our love. It's got to be a level of, of, of conviction behind our willingness to display and to actually stand on the moral principles that we say that we believe in. So it's not so much about getting other people to agree with you. It's about having the courage to work with those who do agree with you to actually turn it into political force and not just stand on the sidelines and use excuses for why we're not involved. Yeah, and I think that 100%. And one of the last things I wanted to ask you is, have you ever met Donald Trump? 
No, I have not. I've seen him at a party, but I have not. Um, so I remember the story you told, like Oprah once said that you, you're one of the best prayers she's ever met in her life. And you obviously with Illuminata, you have this incredible book of prayers. But I remember you telling the story one time of how um, you're you now live in Iowa. But when you lived uh, moved back to uh, New York and all of a sudden you're standing in your apartment one day and you realize, holy shit, I can see the Trump building. And in A Course in Miracles, you know, that says that medium of the uh, uh, miracles of the uh, of the uh, medium prayers are the medium of miracles. Thank you. And. Um, can you tell a story how like you, you made a choice to... I don't, this is not about personally demonizing Donald Trump. This, yes. the, the American people don't need me to tell them who Donald Trump is. The American people don't need me to show them who Donald Trump is. We just need to decide what we want America to be. I'm not in a conversation about Donald Trump. I'm in the con a conversation about the United States, about the space of possibility we can claim for ourselves and what it will do to make that happen. Okay. But thank you so, so much. And uh, I love you so much, Karen. And I love you so much. And thank you for your time. And I can't wait to share this with everybody. And I will put all your links and how people can find you and how they can donate. So I've got you covered on that end. Go and have a beautiful day. I know you're in New Hampshire right now. So go, go love on the people of New Hampshire. And thank you so much. Thank you so much. Okay, love you. Bye. so much for tuning in to this episode of the Karen Kenny Show. <laughs> I super duper appreciate your time, friendship, and support. And look, if something that I shared from my heart today somehow landed in yours, I'd love to hear about it. So please tag me on Facebook or Instagram or IG stories or wherever the cool kids are hanging out these days and let me know what your favorite pot was or what you found most helpful. You can find me over at Karen Kenny Live. That's Karen, K-E-N-N-E-Y-L-I-V-E. -E. And if you're digging what I'm saying and you want to hear more, I'd be wicked grateful if you could go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review because you guys, that's how you'll help me to keep spreading the love. And if you can think of someone that could benefit from hearing this episode, please share it with them. I'd also love to stay connected with you. So if the feeling is mutual, please go to karenkenny.com backslash freebie and download my free guide to building your spiritual team. Until next time, my brothers and sisters, keep living in the fearless flow. Know that I see you, I appreciate you, and I love you. And wherever you go, may you be a blessing.